In this episode of Agentic Shift, we talk to Kevin Lord Berry, founder of Right Percent, a B2B performance agency. Kevin tells us why doing B2B social media is so challenging, what a visual headline is, and why it is so important, how he has grown a team where everyone has a minimum of eight years of experience, and why he values a low-touch, high-trust culture. Enjoy the show. Kevin, thank you for joining us on Agentic Shift. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, we've worked together for many, many years, and we're excited to learn about Right Percent. So maybe to start out, why don't you tell me the elevator pitch for Right Percent? Let's just get right into it. So to answer that question, I have to go way back, back to the beginning years ago. <laughs> but uh, six years ago, I was a freelancer. So I had just left On Deck Capital, which is where I met 3Q Digital, actually, yep, which is awesome. Right. Yep. I left On Deck Capital after three and a half years, and I became a consultant specializing in B2B advertising because that's what I did at On Deck Capital. You know, there started up Facebook and AdWords ads targeting small business owners to get them to get business loans. And while I was doing that, I was pretty good at getting clients for myself through my network. But I also found this cool company in California, Right Side Up. And I found out Right Side Up is a marketplace where people access really good marketing consultants. So nowadays, they have over a 1,000 consultants on the roster doing every kind of marketing job, right? So paid ads like I did, analytics, content, podcasts, everything, interim CMO roles. And I did a lot of B2B ad clients with Right Side Up. So like almost immediately... After I joined them, like they matched me up with Zenefits, for instance, and that's been a very long-standing relationship for us. And it ended up being more than half of my freelance work was through them. And after two or three years of this, I wanted to make my own agency. It was always something I wanted to do. And I go and tell Tyler, the founder of Right Set Up, hey, I'm not going to be able to do these clients anymore. I want to start my own agency. And he's like, well, hold on. How about you start an agency inside of Right Side Up? So that's what I ended up doing. It's been super great. I made Right Percent as like the B2B brand within Right Side Up or B2B division of Right Side Up. And it's just grown a lot from there. The nice thing and sort of the core thing that it's helped to be part of Right Side Up, but which again, it's a consultancy, right? You get access to a ton of really good marketers is that B2B ad talent are the kind of stuff we do, you know, like scaling an account from 50,000 a month on LinkedIn to $500,000 a month within ROI constraints or AdWords, like B2B AdWords specifically, it's a super rare skill set. And so being part of Right Setup lets me access this skill set, find the right kind of people, and then bring them on to my internal team where we can just get sort of a flywheel going of really good B2B talent comes in. We use that on clients, we learn, and then we apply those learnings to all of our B2B ad talent. So that's the basic story of how we started and what we do. Tyler uh, from Right Set Up, his visionary insight, he, like, Right Percent operates as an agency, but Right Side Up is like sort of the anti-agency consultancy. And the idea that he had was talent is everything in marketing. Like you can't out-process like bad talent. And so like the key to the future is finding and creating a marketplace to access that talent. So it's, it sounds awesome, but it also sounds like you're kind of a walking contradiction because yeah. his <laughs> argument is... Talent needs to be free and, and you need to pick and choose from the best. And your argument is, no, I've got the best people come work with my agency. Well, it definitely is a hybrid model. The reason for that, I think, is because B2B ad talent is especially rare and like each of the support pieces of B2B is also different than B2C. Like the way a 
B2B copywriter, B2B creative director, B2B attribution data talent person, it all operates differently than B2C. So it kind of makes sense to combine all that together into a package where like we still operate on the talent model where if someone comes to us as a client, they were still open, like, you know, okay, here's the person that we think is the best fit for you from the right side of network. You can interview them. Here's their LinkedIn, that same transparent process, but just brought all together into a cohesive package. It fits a little better on the B2B side where everything is needed to be, to have that experience um, rather than B2C where it's more common. Okay. I could see that. So when you have sort of a consultancy model, like Right Side Up does, and you're bringing in these contractors into a company, how do you prevent the companies from just saying, this person's great, I want to make them an offer and bring them in-house? Yeah, it's a good question. And the answer is that Right Setup doesn't prevent it. It's actually part of their like value add and pitch is that if you really like your contractor, you can just poach them. And the only difference is you pay Right Side Up a fee for that. Something like 7% might be higher than that. I don't remember. But on the right percent side, we haven't really had that problem. Like, I don't think a client's ever poached one of ours. I think the people who work with me say they really like working on our team. So that's probably why I've told people have gotten offers, but, but they never wanted to take them. There's some people who just are made for an agency. I mean, they like to multitask. They like to constantly sort of have to learn new things very quickly. And they like client service. And there's other people who are best for in-house. They like to focus on one account. They like to not have to have a lot of salesy conversations if they don't want to. And they like to just be really good at like maybe one vertical or one industry instead of being a sort of a expert at many. So from my perspective, I, sometimes you lose someone to an in-house job and you're like, yeah, that was actually probably the right job for you. You're probably going to be happier there. Yep, totally. I think that the B2B, and you mentioned this in particular, some social networks, I feel like that is an area that is very poorly understood. I mean, I feel like there's 10,000 experts on Facebook for B2C companies. But as you said, finding experts who understand B2B is very challenging. You know, what would you describe as the main differences between B2B social media and B2C social media? Yeah. Now, the stock answer to that, that people would give the difference between B2B and B2C would be things like long sales cycle and difficult attribution. But I actually see it broader than that, because while there is that traditional B2B of enterprise long sales cycles, I also in the same bucket consider like targeting, like recruiting nurses for your business where you then market out those nurses to other places or recruiting employees of a big company or like just bottoms up any kind of developer, no matter where they work. That's also B2B to me. You know, it has that profit motive for an individual. You're selling an abstract product that they're using to, for value or gain for themselves. Um, same thing for B2SMB, you know, acquiring restaurants for DoorDash and that kind of thing. It's all part of the same bucket. And I think a couple things differentiates it. So the first thing is on conversion signal and all the details thereof. So in e-commerce, conversion signal usually is purchase, right? Like you're optimizing towards people buying the product in the checkout. Alternatively, maybe you don't get enough purchases, you optimize for add to cart or something like that. In B2B, the game of conversion signal is figuring out what is the leading indicator conversion that correlates to revenue down funnel, whatever your funnel is. So for a PLG business, it's a matter of testing where and you know product that growth where the product is the main thing. There's no sales team where the sales team is less important. If someone comes on the app, what is that key event that happens there? 
Maybe they make their first Trello board or something like that. For Trello or Slack, they make their first Slack instance or create their organization. Finding which of those has the right balance of with your ad budget, can you get 30 to 50 conversions a week? And do these conversions actually matter down funnel? Because the platforms are all giant AIs now. And on the B2C side, that's been learned like thoroughly. You know, the modern marketers all know that. On the B2B side, it's really important as well. And just to figure out like, where's the balance of conversion events? So I would say that's number one, the differentiator for B2B versus B2C. Second is on targeting. So not all targeting can be done purely algorithmically, like, you know, training the platforms. There's also all sorts of tools. The simplest is you have a list that your sales team is targeting and you upload that. Um, More complex is working with tools like metadata or Sixth Sense to find special audiences that you target. Figuring out where on LinkedIn, like which of the selected audiences actually matter versus don't. So that's number two. Beyond that algorithmic, just knowing what's available to you as far as as manual and third-party data targeting. The creative side, you know, this doesn't matter on B2B search, but on B2B social, it's really important. And we've actually gotten really good at it. The big difference is if you were selling a t-shirt or a toaster, the visual explains everything, right? Someone sees a picture of that t-shirt or that toaster, and maybe you have some text that accentuates it, but mainly it's the image of the product that does the selling. And that's why UGC works so well, right? User-generated content in B2C because... People see the product in action. It looks authentic. Now in B2B, in all of the categories of B2B, from B2 employee to B2 enterprise, the product is abstract. It does not immediately explain itself. If you saw a picture of it, it's always going to look like a dashboard or a spreadsheet or some numbers or whatever. So text becomes super duper important. Um, We coined the term visual headline. It's text superimposed on the ad image. And basically it's 60 or 70% of ad performance. And your main job is testing different positionings of that visual headline. How do you get the attention of someone who owns a salon and you have software for that? Or the attention of an HR manager who is very busy, how do you get them to actually know this ad is for you, HR manager, stop because this will be useful for you. That kind of positioning. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I've said this before, but I think B2B advertising is much harder than B2C advertising. And the truth is that B2C advertisers get a lot of the glory. They win the awards at con. And frankly, they often have very large budgets. So they're very important to Google and to Facebook. <laughs> but B2B is so much more nuanced. I mean, there's so much more of a, you know, little minute changes that you have to make to try to get someone to act. And then understanding when someone acts and what they're doing is very challenging. And then you have to integrate with the sales team. Yep. And Uh, third-party data targeting. I mean, really it is B2B marketers just don't get the credit they deserve. That's I've said this for a long time, but just your explanation, I think is a great example of that. So thank you. Yeah. That's why I mentioned at the start, but slide three of my pitch deck is B2B ad talent is rare. That's the reason. It's just how many opportunities do you get to manage a B2B ad account that's spending 500,000 a month? I would guess there's less than a thousand people out there who have managed a LinkedIn account with direct response that's spending 500,000 a month. It's a super rare skill set, just as a particular example. Yeah. Well, even rarer is if you get up to the point of like spending $500,000 a month and you're dealing with an enterprise B2B company. I mean, there are a lot of SaaS SMB companies that are certainly B2B. In some respects, the ads sort of feel consumer-like. If you're selling a $19.95 a month SaaS But when you're selling a relational database for $2 million, if you get up to big budgets with that and you can prove the ROI of that, that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah. And 
it's a lot easier when you don't need to sell that enterprise, but you want to. Like the ideal situation where like we have a few very high skill accounts that drive enterprise business, but you know, usually it also drives mid-market business and it also drives the entire funnel. You know, like uh, sometimes I say how the Native Americans eat every part of the buffalo. Like that's what you <laughs> want your ad strategy to do. Like have a way to monetize everybody. I love that. That's a great analogy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of B2B companies, actually, I've found them, this is an aside, but they start out with an SMB SaaS solution, yep. and then they just want to become enterprise because they realize how painful it is to actually manage tens of thousands of customers. So I guess you could say that they start out at one end of the buffalo and they kind of want to end up at the other end of the buffalo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at valuations for SaaS companies in the stock market, all of the biggest ones make most of their money from enterprise. Like it, it's the exceptions like Bill.com that still have like lots of SMB. Right. So everybody wants to move up market and you can definitely do it with ads. You just have to do it right. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned how rare it is to find experts at B2B. So are you only hiring people who have past experience or do you have a training program? What's the mix of people on your team? So the minimum seniority is eight years of experience running ads on my team. I don't train juniors at all. I don't know how. I've never done it in my life. And the reason I'm able to do that is being part of Right Setup, right? So the usual structure is I'll find someone with the relevant experience. Sometimes it doesn't have to be someone with B2B experience, especially if like they're going to be running a B2S and B account. If they're just really good at that channel, we can train them in it. But usually they have B2B experience. We bring them on board. We test them on a client. And then if they're good, like we keep using them or hire them to be part of the full-time team. Wow, that's a very high bar. It reminds me of back in 2004, I interviewed at Intuit and they said they were looking for someone with four to six years of SEM experience. And I said, the only people who have that much experience are Larry and Sergey at that point, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> but eight years, I mean, that's a tremendous bar. You just have to reject 98% of the people that come to your door. Yeah. And we rarely put out job postings, right? Percent. It's through that freelancer pipeline and, and right side up. We find a really good person, we test them out and then keep working with them. They're good. That's amazing. So, well, let me ask you about once you get someone in the door, tell us about your culture. How would you describe your culture? Do you have core values or promises that are important to you? Yes. So there's two ways to answer that question. So one is we are part of the broader Right Setup team. You know, there's Right Setup retreats and there's Right Setup culture values that I all strongly agree with. Excellence, honesty. The other two, uh, can't remember right now. You don't agree with them. They're terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're terrible. Like, I don't know why murder is one of them. But... <laughs> murder is a competition. Yep. At right percent, I think for all of Right Setup, but especially my team, it's a very, because everyone's so senior, it's a very high trust culture, a very low touch culture. Like, basically, we just want to be there to support people when they need it. We want to keep processes to like only what's necessary to get the job done. So when processes are added, they're rarely removed as companies get bigger. So I'm very cautious about adding new processes. I've learned from being a consultant and a marketer for so long, like friction is the enemy of marketing team because creativity is so important, especially on social. But if you have a team where every time you want to make, you have an idea for a test on Facebook, some targeting or on LinkedIn or an idea for a creative if you have to fill out like a checklist and a creative brief and get it approved by three people and then have a process, it's just human nature. People on the account are going to be less likely to propose these ideas and get new things tested. So that's part of the culture. Just uh, test new things, a lot of freedom to try, a lot of trust. That's interesting. Yeah, I think Scott Galloway, I'm maybe not giving him credit for something he didn't write, but I think he wrote it. He talked about how bureaucracy is creeping into 
corporate culture in America and that the number of managers and the ratio of people that they manage today is at a sort of an all-time high. I mean, it's like the ratio is like four people that a manager is managing versus it used to be like 12 or something like that. And he's talked about how like places, even even at Google as an example, they're trying to radically empower people to make decisions and reduce red tape. And then the other sort of related point on that is we worked with a great EOS implementer, the Entrepreneur's Operating System, named Mike Wolfgang. And Mike was a Marine. In fact, he was on Marine One with the president many times. But one of the things he told me about the Marines, which I thought was fascinating, is he said, a lot of people think of the Marines as the jugheads. They just do what they're told, but it's actually the opposite. The Marines actually train their team to make decisions at the lowest level during battle. So the individual Marine is empowered to act in the way that he or she thinks is best for the squad, which is not what I would have expected, but he said that really works well. So it feels like you're kind of going the same direction. As opposed to the Russian army in Ukraine, which has to like telephone Putin every time they want to do something. Right, (laughs) right. And we see what's happening there, right? I mean, there's actually been stories about that where generals are sort of getting on the phone and by getting on the phone, they're actually revealing their identity to the Ukrainians. And then they're asked while they're waiting for approval from Moscow, they're getting shot down. Yep. So I have a question for you. So we've had a client that I love, a very good client. They've gotten big over the years. And there's a creative approval process, which is totally normal. But it's been there for two years and stakeholders keep getting added over time, right? Oh, legal should review the creative and this person and that and the new hires. I want you to guess how many people are on the weekly creative invite. Not how many attend, but how many have been added over the years and not removed from this creative approval process. I'm going to say, well, I'm probably going to guess low, but I'm going to say 45. Okay, 61. You were closer than, than anyone I've ever seen on the guest. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's fine. But just, just an example of how a big company thinks just accumulate like cruft, right? Well, unfortunately, I mean, this also sort of plays into the, you want to have a sort of a stage appropriate agency as a client. And unfortunately, when you get to clients that have a thousand person marketing teams, you do end up the situation where you have 20 or 30 or 50 people on a call. And if you're a small agency, you can't handle getting 50 emails from 50 different people every day. And so as a result, the large company almost has no choice but to choose a large agency. And there's bureaucracy on both sides. And you sort of wonder if it all makes sense in terms of the end goals. Yep. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it's more fun to be working with startups where there's the CEO is also the CMO part-time yeah. and everyone's just sort of racing to get stuff done as quickly as possible. Yep. Yeah. We haven't lost a client yet to like a big agency. We've lost pitches, but not a client, but we've been through the process of, you know, a few companies have gone public, like they're with us. The sweet spot for us is definitely like series B to like just went public. Yeah, that's great. That's a fun time. So let me ask you this. How would you describe your leadership style? You're obviously very hands-off and you empower people to make good decisions, but what else would, if I asked one of your team members, how would they describe Kevin's leadership style? What, what would they say? Yeah, exactly what you said. Trusting hands-off. I like finding strategic leverage points. To me, that's the most enjoyable part of the business. And I've gotten feedback that it's helpful. Like how I answered the question earlier, what makes B2B different? Conversion signal, or like what are the keys, right? Conversion signals, creative, and then like the long tail. I like making either strategies or philosophies that I publish for the public on rightpercent.com or in LinkedIn, but that also are very useful for informing our team. Like I recently made an article on offers, B2B offers, 
everyone thinks of offers for B2C as you get the idea, buy one, get one free, 50% off. People don't think about offers for B2B, even though it's a super duper powerful lever, like even for enterprise. And so I wrote an article on that and my team told me like they found it super useful when communicating that to clients. So things like that. I guess strategic help, because that's kind of my role, bouncing between accounts and like giving that extra bit of insight or point of leverage. Yeah. So yeah, very much uh, delegate, let people make smart decisions. Yeah. I'm not on any weekly calls anymore, like regular weekly calls, unless I'm invited for some reason, you know. That's great. Yeah. One of my mantras is the job of an entrepreneur is to fire himself from jobs. So it seems like you're achieving that. Yep. What do you think is the future of agencies? We talked about this earlier. You're sort of in an interesting spot because you're part of Right Side Up, which has a unique model. What's your opinion of five or 10 years from now? What are agencies going to be different than what they're like today? I mean, I think the Right Side Up model is really good. Its simplicity is really good. I look with admiration on it as I run mine kind of in the agency way. I mean, I think talent is always going to be important. Fundamentally, we're all kind of in a fight for talent. Is anything else going to really change? Well, one thing's obvious that you see in the B2C side, but also on the B2B, in that paid social is becoming less media buying and more creative. Like, you know, 60% of your effort should be on making new creative offers positioning and like 40% on actually like the details of the targeting. I think AI is getting even more important, like the machine learning of the platforms. I went over that as like a, a core competency for B2B right now, but even in search campaigns, like consolidated broad campaigns with a good conversion signal, three years ago was like unheard of. You'd be like, yeah, Google, they always try to get you to do their AI stuff and waste their money. But actually nowadays it's getting better and better. So I imagine we'll be moving more to that in the future where marketers are wranglers of these AI black boxes. Yeah, I'd had a conversation with a friend of mine who has a social media agency and and he was, I guess you could say more dire in his thinking than than the way you just described it with respect to AI. He basically said, look, Google and Facebook, the automation is making agencies mostly obsolete. And the only thing that agencies can do to be relevant these days is to do creative. And I guess you would say performance creative as opposed to just creating ads that win awards for cleverness. So I've sort of preached this doom and gloom for a while like, that the automation is going to sort of reduce the need for an agency. I've also said that even if the need is reduced, I mean, whereas 10 years ago, 80% of the performance was driven by the agency and 20% was by the automation, maybe today it's, I don't know, 60% automation and 40% agency. So it's still a pretty big chunk, but the trend seems to be going in that direction where more and more for a lot of these platforms, you're sort of just inputting how much you're willing to pay for a lead or for a sale, and then the system does the rest. And certainly that feels sort of scary, but I'm probably also sort of overestimating how quickly the doom will come. For me, I think I have two responses. One is, you know, one advantage of having a team that's very focused on the talent and less on the process is that I feel we're very adaptable. Like when iOS 14 came out, a lot of people were doom and gloom. I wasn't really worried. And, you know, it had some impact, but nothing that you can't adapt to. On the AI side, the second part of my answer is, and I say this a lot in pitches, the platform AIs are incredibly intelligent and also incredibly stupid, especially in B2B where the conversion event is less obvious. You can optimize on lead and the platforms will be like, no problem, buddy. I'm going to go out and get you the most amount of leads and happily do it and none will convert because the difference between a lead and a good lead is very different. 
you train the platform to optimize on a special event you made, like even something as simple as you test lead form, but only where they say they're looking to make a change in the next 60 days and only where company size is over 100 employees. And all of a sudden, if you get 30 to 50 conversion events a week, sending that data to Facebook, it'll actually, or, or Google or LinkedIn, they'll start to actually learn that better lead. So you have to be the brain pointing the AIs because they will happily paperclip optimize, if you know that that expression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a couple of things. I mean, I've always said um, having Google manage your ad campaigns is like having the IRS file your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> but the other point I'd make is just that a generic algorithm performs generically. And to your point, if you don't give it the right inputs, it has no idea that it's doing something wrong. And the analogy I would give there is if you add two ad texts, and let's say you're a B2B SaaS, enterprise SaaS company, and one of your ads said, download our white paper to learn about the most recent changes in, I don't know, cryptocurrency security. And the other ad said, get one year trial of our product absolutely free, no questions asked without entering your email address. <laughs> you know, you're going to get a lot of conversions on the second ad, but those people are not actually interested in paying you anything. So you've got a lot of email addresses from people who just are looking for something for free. It's worth nothing to you. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like creative has impacts all down the funnel. And that's why when people ask, what leverage do we have for lead quality, you know, conversion event and creative. Yep. And targeting, as you said, I mean, just like sort of eliminating the looky-loos or the consumers. The other example I would use is if you buy the word internet security, if you're an enterprise software security company, you're probably going to 99% of people who are searching for that are typing and are looking for Norton antivirus. You're just wasting your money. And you can try to modify that with creative by saying something like, we are an enterprise security solution that costs $10,000 a month. Don't hit click here unless you're going to pay that. But at the end of the day, you're still going to get a lot of consumers who are like, oh, I saw the number $10,000. I better click on this. Yeah, totally. So I guess one last question would be, as you look back, I mean, so you've had a storied career working in-house and then you've been a consultant and now you've built this agency. If you were talking to someone who is starting an agency today, what sort of advice would you give them with the hindsight of all the learnings you've had in your career? It's a good question. So first is on cash flow. As an individual consultant, if you're good, you can kind of rake in the money. You'll need like to fill the time of two or three people doing client work before you make the same amount of net income, assuming you're not putting more back in the business. And cash flow is always harder than you think. Like ad account spend can go down as fast as it goes up. So those are the two really practical parts. The second for me, funny thing is I started an agency, but I never worked at an agency before, like Mm. nothing even close to it. I was only ever in-house at brands and small businesses. And so I kind of learned first principles from scratch. For example, when I was a consultant, I did everything on my own. I learned how to do the creative well, the offer, the analytics, the data tagging, as well as the media buying and the strategy. And I quickly learned it is impossible to hire someone Like even with my way where I have access to all these freelancers who can actually do all of that reliably. So you need functions that work across the business. Like you can't have all in ones on each account. So you have get someone who's really good at an ad channel and then help them with a creative director and a copywriter who's really good at B2B and and someone who understands tagging for B2B, et cetera. And then, you know, you have all those cross-divisional stuff help each other. And this is obvious to you and anyone who worked at an agency, but that was something I learned over time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I never worked at an agency before I started my agency, too. (laughs) So I feel like someone needs to write a book. Maybe it already exists on how to run an agency. This book must exist somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it does. 
I love remote, by the way. I love Slack. As far as, far as agencies go, I couldn't live without Slack. It, it's the best. I like Slack okay. I feel like there's been a lot of iterations of things like Slack over the years. And at the end of the day, I feel like whatever you're using, you figure out a way to use it and you get used to it. But sure, I mean, I think Slack is cool and I'm just a grumpy old man, so I complain about everything new. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and congrats on the success of Right Percent. I mean, it's a really impressive story and wishing you success in the future. Great. A new episode of Agentic Shift drops every Wednesday. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit agenticshift.com to see the latest episode.